Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, I'm joined actually by two colleagues and friends with whom I just concluded a months-long investigation into the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin's core of not just Russian mercenaries, as we found out, but Ukrainian, Moldovan mercenaries as well. This investigation took us to Kiev, first and foremost, where, reporting on my GRU book in September, I met General Igor Guskov, who was the former head of the uh, analytical department at the SBU, Ukraine's Domestic Security Service. And since leaving the service, uh, he has continued his work, which now encompasses some seven years of mapping and anatomizing the Wagner Group. He had compiled a database, along with his colleagues, of over 4,000 known Wagner fighters who have been deployed all over the world, Donbass, obviously, uh, Syria, Libya, Central African Republic, Mozambique, etc. And he was all too happy to share this work with us on the condition that we gave credit to, to him and his organization. And I figured, look, the best stuff in this database, which contained both the full names, first name, patronymic, surname, dates of birth, country of origin or nationality, but also in some cases, last known home addresses. So I thought the best way of going forward with an investigation like this is find uh, dead Wagner fighters and try to contact their family members. This scoop, if you like to call it, um, or this this acquisition of data coincided with a trip I had also done to Estonia. And one of my my partners in, in journalism for the last several months, if not over a year now, has been uh, Holger Runema, who's a brilliant uh, Estonian reporter with Delphi, Estonia. I think it's the largest news outlet in the country. Is that right, Holger? Or have I, have I oversold you? Uh, hi, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's correct. Yeah. Right. And I said, look, you know, I've got this tranche of, of information that I, I can't really analyze on, on my own. And would you like to partner up? And obviously, Holger is preternaturally fascinated by all the same stuff that I am uh, having to do with Russia. So he, he happily agreed. And over the course of several weeks, the investigation expanded and we brought on first and foremost, uh, Matthias Carlson, who's also on the show today. And he is, Matthias, I'm going to have you say it again, because I, I will just screw it up. <laughs> Attached with a, a very well-known Swedish publication called... Uh, Dagens Nyheter is the um, biggest uh, morning newspaper uh, in Sweden. There you go. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and Matthias has uh, fluent Russian and obviously also very interested in the subject matter. And so we kept kind of bringing on new international investigators we partnered with uh, Moldova Rise, is it, Holger? The, it's a, yeah, it's Rise. Yeah, yeah, it's a small investigative journalism outlet in, in Moldova. Yeah. So basically, our, our methodology was, okay, we, we can't go to Russia and report on the Wagner Group for reasons I, I shouldn't have to explain on this show anyway to this audience. But we could e easily go to Ukraine and Moldova and wherever else that some of these fighters might have come from and see if family members, survivors are willing to talk. And lo and behold, they were, at least uh, quite a number of them. I mean, in the piece, we've got half a dozen families, whether it's um, sisters, brothers, uh, fathers, or mothers. But I think we, we ultimately ended up interviewing close to a dozen, 11 or so families around the world. I, I want to turn it over to my colleagues to talk about, you know, they're part of the investigation. But to, to my mind, just as a short note, what was so fascinating about this is Wagner has been a kind of black hole for reporters for quite a while. 
you see headlines such as the Wagner Group doesn't exist because uh, it's not an incorporated entity anywhere. Um, and, you know, it, it exists almost at the level of rumor or speculation. Um, we know the commander, Dmitry Utkin, is a former officer in the GRU. We know that he called this uh, paramilitary organization the Wagner Group because he has a fondness for Nazi iconography. And obviously, Richard Wagner is or was Adolf Hitler's favorite composer. So there's a kind of weird welter of, of you know, scuttlebutt and some documentary evidence. Uh, New Lines magazine published um, documents that were obtained from a, a, a tablet device found in Libya by some BBC journalists, which was kind of fascinating to get a sense of what these guys are reading and what they're interested in, at least virtually. But I think our story, our investigation really put faces to this organization, it put, uh, this is probably a bad metaphor to use in these circumstances, but meat on the bone, if you like. Uh, we, we found people who's, who have lost their relatives to the recruitment, uh, you know, a tribe of, of you know, Mr. Pedagogian's mercenary corps. Uh, and we also found that they got up to pretty horrific acts. One of the families we interviewed uh, is related to a man who appeared on a video in 2017 that was taken in Homs, Syria. This video became notorious. It went viral, in fact, because it showed about five Wagner operatives uh, bludgeoning a Syrian man who turned out to be a deserter from the Syrian military, bludgeoning him to death with a sledgehammer, dismembering his hands, severing his head from his body, stringing him up by his feet, and then setting him alight all while they're sort of giggling and chortling in the background. And then apparently there's a longer video showing them playing soccer with the guy's severed head. I mean, this is something out of ISIS, right? And except it was a, a Russian military organization. So we interviewed that guy's family. One of the things that comes across is that, you know, everybody starts out as a, as a human being. All of these guys came from rather impoverished, socioeconomically backward areas in the post-Soviet space. And, you know, whilst they might have had some criminal background or, you know, got up to no good in their childhood, he, nobody remembers them as being a psychopath. Nobody remembers them as, as being capable of war crimes or crimes against humanity. So it kind of shows the evolution of somebody who gets sent into foreign battle spaces and morally, ethically, and I guess uh, intellectually kind of descends into some darkened hell. Anyway, I want to talk to Holger and Matthias because uh, they were really kind of the integral components of this investigation, went around meeting the families themselves. Guys, it's great to have you on. Thank you for uh, interrupting your Christmas holiday to do this. And yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm very gratified to see the response to this investigation. I mean, I knew it would do well, but it's done amazingly well. I've gotten messages from other journalists saying it's a tremendous coup and you know, it, it kind of broke New Lines' uh, computer service for a while. And I know that it's done high-profile business in, in your respective countries. Tell me from your, your point of, points of view, I mean, because you've been at, in, into this from the very beginning, what was the most surprising thing about what we found out, you know, in terms of whether just looking at the raw data from that, that spreadsheet that I sent over many moons ago or from the shoe leather reporting of going door-to-door, -door, meeting the survivors? Yeah, maybe like just a little bit of correction, and then that's also an, an answer to your question. Is that uh, you said in the beginning that uh, the family members uh, were happy to talk with us, but uh, no, I think that we didn't meet any happy anyone who was happy or, or happy to talk with us uh, on that ten-day trip that we took with Matthias uh, in in Ukraine and and Moldova. But they were willing to talk with us, and I think 
that was actually a surprise that we were discussing with Matthias before the trip that we might end up like spending a lot of time in, in Ukraine and Moldova, uh, driving thousands of kilometers and in the end coming back with, with nothing. But uh, I think that a lot of why these people were actually willing to talk with us and some people also rejected, they didn't want to talk with us at all, but mostly they were open to talk with us. But I think the reason was that um, they hoped that we would know more about what had happened to their close ones. Yeah. Because most of the families whose doors we knocked on, their close ones had been killed fighting for, for Wagner PMC. But at the same time, the relatives, the, the widows or the parents or the sisters or the brothers, they really up to today, like even three or four years later, we don't have basically any clue of how their close ones, how their family members ended up there somewhere in Syria, for example. And that is the reason why why they invited us in, that they hope that maybe we can share some new details, some new facts to them, actually. And I mean, you know, if, if they lived in Russia, they might have been a little more unwilling or, or reluctant to talk to us. But the fact, I think, that they don't, that they live in, in European countries, made them more amenable. I mean, these are people who have been told, don't ask questions, don't kick up a fuss, don't go to the media. If you antagonize the, the Russian government in any way or try to seek answers about what happened to your relative, you'll be denied the right to go to Rostov to visit their gravesite. Right. I mean, all these guys that, that we, we managed to track who fell on the battlefield are buried in the same place. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a very important factor that uh, the graves of these killed mercenaries are usually somewhere in, in Russia. And for people from Moldova or, or Ukraine to go uh, visit the graves, they need to cross the border. Yeah. And then one mom uh, who we talked with, uh, uh, whose, whose son had been uh, killed in, in, in Syria, she told us that uh, she was basically said that uh, if you ask uh, too many questions about what ac- what actually happened, then you will not be able to go to Russia anymore. And then that's it. Yeah. And I mean, we were in some cases able to give a sense of at least, well, from the, the data that we've got, here's when they died, here's where they died. And we were able to kind of reconstruct you know, was this, for instance, that now famous operation where Wagner tried to conduct some sortie against U.S.-backed forces in Derzor, eastern Syria, and then they were all wiped out, including through the use of American aircraft? I mean, we did kind of provide answers where we could to these families, right? I mean, I, I assume that most of them, if not all of them, were completely blinded as to where in the world was my son or my husband deployed? You know, was it Ukraine? Was it Syria? Was it Libya? We did have that information as best we could check it. Yeah, yeah we had some some information. And uh, a lot of times uh, these mercenaries themselves had told their families that uh, we were going to work in a, in a taiga to cut down forest or something like that. Or we would just go on a business trip for, for several months. And, uh, Sorry, mom, I will not be taking my, my phone with me. I will call it when I'm back. But it wasn't the, the son calling back. It was uh, the son's comrades. Uh, comrades letting the families know that actually their, their son or, or brother or whoever had been killed in Syria as a, as a mercenary. It's one one thing to take a look on this story from the, I don't know, like Russian side, from a political side, from a macro side. But I think that what our story manages to also show is that uh, the micro level of, of the tragedy of families. Right? We met very few people who were 
openly, I don't know, politically active or openly pro-Kremlin or, or pro-Putin or something like that. Most of the families that we met actually were politically completely, they didn't have any any interest in politics. They were just trying to get on with their lives. And I think that also explains why, why their uh, family members had eventually become mercenaries, because they didn't see that perspective in, in their lives. It was like, difficult to, to handle in the places where average salary is, is uh, maybe $400, $500 a month, where we don't have education, where job opportunities are scarce. It, it wasn't like an ideological move for, for these people that we talk with uh, to become mercenaries, but it was a very practical decision. And I mean, uh, Matthias, let's talk about the way that Wagner recruits fighters. I mean, they essentially put up classified ads on job-seeking websites, right? And they, they, they couch the assignment in sort of weirdly ambiguous, awkwardly worded terms. You will have an armed security responsibility protecting objects on the territory. They, they, they're not saying we're going to send you to Syria to go fight no. insurgents or jihadists. Right? I mean, but <laughs> it sounds both nebulous, but also kind of exciting and glamorous at the same time, which I think is part of the draw for a lot of these guys, right? Yeah, it's almost like a code uh, that you know certain people would understand what what it actually means. And uh, there is also some, I mean, details in these ads that uh, give, gives hints to, for example, they say that you are supposed to have a armed uh, guard service, but you don't need a weapons license or you don't need a license to be a guard. So I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not uh, in Russia they will be guards. Uh, but somewhere else and uh, but in one case uh, i mean we talked to the the youngest uh, of the uh, wagner uh, guys that died uh, his, his name is mark he's from kharkiv and um, we talked to his mother and uh, he actually uh, told her before he uh, he left for syria that he was going to syria and that he uh, described it as a peacekeeper assignment that he was uh, but of course the mother uh, i mean more or less understood uh, the reality of it. Right. And I mean, a lot of these guys do have military backgrounds. I mean, I remember uh, General Guskov saying that if you drill down into some of, you know, the kind of the history of the classified ads that have gone up, Wagner actually likes people with criminal profiles. They are seeking out sociopaths um, because the, the work, obviously, you know, you're being sent to a war zone under the veil of plausible deniability. There is no technical or formal attachment to the Russian Ministry of Defense. Uh, much less to the GRU, they kind of encourage them to go out there and do things that militaries governed by the laws of armed conflict simply would not do. I mean, again, witness this video that circulated of um, five Wagner fighters mutilating, torturing Hamadi Buta, who who wasn't even on the other side. He He had been seconded into the Syrian military as a reservist and just said, I don't want to fight. I'm just going to desert and tried to run away. And they caught him. And this is what they did to him on camera. With the encouragement, according to the European Union, which just sanctioned all of Wagner two weeks ago, it was Dmitry Utkin, the, the commander, who told Wagner, chop this guy up and film it. And this is not, you know, that's why when people compare it to other PMCs, I mean, the most notorious one is, of course, Blackwater, which has also been committed war crimes in, in Iraq, as determined by a U.S. court. Wagner is something a little bit different. They go above and beyond in brutality and in, well, just complete indifference to how they treat their quarry uh, when captured, whatever. Can we go into a little bit about sort of the, uh, I mean, no, no, no mother likes to remember her child as a war criminal, right? And of course, I mean, these guys were matured in the cask of a God knows what kind of... Um, Kampf camaraderie is 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 applied here. You know, talk a little bit about what you 
I mean, from the investigation, it sort of reads like they all have cookie cutter backgrounds. Growing up in some post-Soviet miserable town or village, not being educated well, often the family, the mother and the father, uh, it was a broken home, a dysfunctional home or a violent home where the father would beat the mother. I mean, these are people who almost seemed in, in hindsight destined for no good. Right. It was just a question of who was going to get their tender hooks into them first. Yeah. In one of the cases, uh, we spoke to the, the both the mother and the father of one guy called Yevgeny Antipov. And uh, it's, it's one of the cases uh, with the criminals uh, past. I mean, he was uh, part of the uh, tragic events in May in 2014 in Odessa, where you had uh, the anti-Maidan and the uh, Maidan the people uh, uh, battling out there. And uh, so he was a wanted uh, by the uh, Ukrainian uh, police for rioting and with a, a deadly outcome. So he, I mean, he was uh, wanted for a crime that could give him up to 15 years in prison in Ukraine. So, of course, there was no way he could ever go back. So I guess he would be a very suitable uh, person to recruit. And we know uh, that he first uh, came to uh, eastern Ukraine and, and, you know, from, from with the uh, fighters there. And so we don't know exactly how he was recruited to Wagner, but... No, it's a yeah, pretty obvious. Yeah, he had he had no way back anymore. One of the interesting interviews that we had on the road was actually in, in Moldova with a psychologist who has analyzed the psychological and, and also like uh, social backgrounds of mercenaries who have been convicted in uh, in Moldova. It's not only mercenaries fighting for Wagner, but also from or for all kinds of uh, other paramilitary units uh, who were, uh, for example, taking part in, in the war in eastern Ukraine. She said that. One of the unifying elements for all these people convicted, or close to 20 of them, yeah. is a lack of empathy. But these people are unable to control their emotions. We are very cold in, in communicating. And that is the main reason why these people are able to kill, uh, end of quote. I think that struck me. This is the, the clearest as, as it can be, but to who comes, who is able to become a mercenary chopping off other people's hands and, and heads and, and burning the, the corpses. But uh, the, the lack of total lack of empathy. But that, but that goes to Guskov's point. I mean, lack of empathy is one of the signature symptoms of uh, sociopathy, right? So it, it, they're, they're looking for people who are going to do this kind of thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of criminals there. There are, there are criminals uh, fighting in, in, uh, in Wagner who allegedly have been uh, given an option that either you go and, and fight for a private military company such as Wagner, or you will face uh, X amount of years in, in prison. Right. <laughs> so what kind of choices do you have? And then, and then when you get out of prison, you'll be brutalized enough that it will, it will bring you back into Wagner as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's it's kind of extraordinary, and you know, again, the the murkiness of of what they get up to in, on the battlefield. I mean, we still only have, you know, a fraction of events and and operations that they took part in. I mean, the the insane drive to try and take the Conoco gas plant in Derzor, despite American warnings to stand down, they kept pressing on, right? Um, so it was a kind of they're using these guys. We I think we use the expression cannon fodder. But also they're kind of um, they're personnel in a, a kind of Russian proving ground for military operations. You know, what can the MOD get away with? What kind of enemies and adversaries are is it going to encounter on the battlefield? And let's send Wagner out first to <laughs> to, to determine, you know, um, you know what their vulnerabilities are or what their resolve and, and deterrent capability is. They're, they are expendable people. Right. Ultimately. Yeah. They're not buried with 
kind of state honors. I don't know if we got into this, but there is an internal award system. I mean, I remember Guskov explaining to me that there are three different medals. One is for uh, acts of valor and bravery, which God only knows what that constitutes among Wagner fighters. One is obviously if you were killed, you get you know an award or sent to your family or whatever. And then another is for um, injury on the battlefield. So there's a kind of tripartite structure for medals pinned to the chest, but these are, have nothing. There's no outward connection to Russian state. It's only an internal thing. And I wonder, do, do these, you know, are there, are there kind of like veterans of Wagner going to be sitting around the campfire in 25 years remembering their exploits in Syria and, and Libya? Or, I mean, it's, it sounded to me that everybody kind of comes away quite miserable or they're offered this fame and fortune. And, and in some cases, you know, they start to make the wage they were promised. What is it? 2000 rubles a month. But then the, the salary steadily decreases, if not gets cut off entirely. So they're kind of left stranded captive to this core and not even getting the money that they signed up to get. Yeah, but uh, we've been uh, like browsing or going through, I don't know, hundreds of uh, Russian social media profiles uh, as part of this uh, investigation. And one thing that you actually can see there is that uh, these, uh, these mercenaries do actually form uh, like friendship groups. And they post all the photos like going out fishing and uh, traveling and stuff like that. So I think that in the end, the only thing that you will have are people uh, who share the same fate and the same stories as you. So unfortunately, I think that 25 years from now, if we are still alive and if we are not in prison, uh, they will be sharing fireside conversations with each other. The ones that live, that is. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the other things, I mean, this is a, a nice tidbit, I think, for, for the listeners. We didn't get into this because I don't think we were able to confirm it. And Christo Grozev of Bellingcat was a, a partner of ours um, for a very specific reason, which is when I got the database, uh, General Guskov said, look, you know, these guys are traveling under false passports. At least some of them, a handful of them were traveling under false passports. And what he managed to realize was that a handful of them had the same numerical sequencing in their false passports as the, or was in the same numerical grouping as at least one of the assassins or would-be assassins of Sergei Skripal. I can't remember if it was Mishkin or Chapiga. But anyway, this was kind of a, a blockbuster disclosure. Again, we couldn't, we weren't able to chase it up to our satisfaction, but uh, it suggested, at least to the SBU's mind, that Look, the idea that this is a private military company, that this is some kind of entrepreneurial thing that run by Prigozhin is nonsense. They are lock and key with not just the Russian government, but the GRU in particular, right? If they're getting false identities that are manufactured by the same kind of printing press, passport printing press in Moscow, that's giving uh, passports to members of unit 29155, the sabotage assassination unit stood up in 2009 to conduct Mukurigelo around the world, clearly Wagner is, is just an extension. And, and I think we even have uh, the former head of the SBU saying, don't think of them as, you know, some standalone entity. I mean, they are the GRU. Uh, yeah. And then besides that, uh, we, we need to remember that we are also using a lot of the uh, weaponry that we are using in the places, as, I don't know, Libya, Syria, or, or other like, African countries where they are, that they are using Russian military weapons. And that's not stuff that you could buy somewhere commercially. You need to get, you need to have it supplied from the military, actually. So there is pretty clear, pretty clear evidence about that. After we ran the story, I did a follow-up in Estonia about the Mali situation regarding uh, Wagner having negotiations to, to put up its 
open its uh, shop in, in Mali as well, where there are also right now up to 100 Estonian soldiers helping the, the actual peacekeeping mission. And if, if a Wagner deal goes through, then uh, Estonians uh, would actually be, uh, and Swedes and French and, and the, in the coalition, I think, are like close to 15 or 20 countries. They would be basically fighting on the same side <laughs> with, uh, with Wagner, which would put uh, all these troops uh, or all these countries in a very peculiar position. But two weeks ago, we kind of uh, put sanctions against Wagner, and then now we will be fighting in, in the same place. But anyway, what I was happy to realize when talking to the officials in Estonian Ministry of Defense is that uh, at least in Estonia as well, we understand is, is quite uh, quite the same as, as Silkrit Sakvi, former uh, general uh, of, of SPU, told us that there isn't such a thing as a private military company. But it's actually it's just uh, an extension of, of, of Russian authorities. Yeah. And then that's it. But you need to take uh, the same look at the things that are happening in Africa, the things that are happening right now in Mali is actually very closely connected to the stuff that we are seeing uh, happening right now on the Ukrainian border. Now, that's interesting. Can you get into that a little bit? What how closely connected in what sense? Uh, well, basically, it's it's the question of right now. I'm I'm not talking about my own analytics. I, I'm I'm talking about uh, quotes given to me by an uh, official in Estonian Ministry of Ministry of, of Defense. Yeah, no, I get that. But I mean, what what was he getting at? What did he mean, or she? She, yeah, yeah. Well, the point is that uh, that Russia doesn't have any strategic interest as such in Mali. But why the negotiations between Mali in, in Mali between the transitional government and, and Wagner, so-called Wagner, going on, and then why there is a threat of uh, Wagner going into that place is that Russia wants to get the attention of France and some other countries away from some other places, uh, such as Ukraine. So we are just uh, trying uh, to kind of um, flood the attention span and, and the, the, the timetable and the calendars that uh, people have in places such as French Ministry of Defense. Interesting. I mean, it's not the first time, by the way, that France would find itself on the same side of the fight as Wagner. When, when the the French government and the uh, the United Arab Emirates were propping up uh, Khalifa Haftar in Libya, especially during his assault or his push on Tripoli, the Russians had sent Wagner in to partner with him, even though, funnily enough, <laughs> they thought the guy was a, a lunatic and a busted flush militarily. They were still helping him. So yeah, I mean, it's this weird dance. The West is against Wagner and Russia and Ukraine and to some extent in Syria, but in other parts of the world, particularly in uh, in Africa, where Wagner's been deployed, we find ourselves on the same side, right? Fighting jihadism. You know, to your point, though, about getting Russian military-grade weaponry, I remember one of the, the first things that Guskov told me was, if you go back to 2014, perhaps 2015, one of the key battles that took place in Syria between the, the so-called separatists and the Ukrainian government, Utkin was there and he was commanding the Wagner fighters, right? I mean, the Wagner fighters were, were kind of the first deployed in. And after the battle where the Ukrainian government essentially wiped the floor with, with the Russians, Utkin, and they know this because they, they intercepted the communications and this is publicly available on YouTube or whatever. But Utkin was radioing back to someone in Moscow saying, forget about the dead bodies. We'll take care of that later. Take your armored personnel carriers out of here because these are vehicles that are only manufactured in one place. And if the Ukrainians publicize this, all bets are off. They're going to know that there's a direct Russian military intervention in East Ukraine. Which again confirms uh, what you said earlier, that uh, these men are, are often only cannon fodder. Exactly. I mean, they, they are, they're sent in to sort of to, to probe the front line and see what, they, what the Russians can get away with. And, you know, I mean, dead bodies, no problem. But captured equipment, more of an issue. 
just like the book that took down MH17. You know, where did it come from? What's next, I do you think, for, for Wagner? I mean, one of the questions I've been asked is, well, if, if Putin does reinvade Ukraine this month, which seems, well, depending on what day of the week it is, increasingly likely or increasingly less likely, will Wagner be part of that fight? I see no reason why it wouldn't be. I mean, for all, all of the above, right? I mean, just easily disavowed. They're just volunteers. They're just separatists. They had nothing to do with Russia. And will, the willingness to do things that the average conscript would not. Yeah, I think it was uh, Reuters who, who reported just ahead of Christmas as well that, uh, that several uh, people involved in that process confirmed to them uh, that actually Russia was setting up, uh, was like taking or, or finding mercenaries uh, to, to deploy them uh, to, to eastern Ukraine. And actually, uh, when working on our investigation, we also got acquainted with evidence that uh, suggests the same. That Russia was actively looking for mercenaries who would be deployed to, to eastern Ukraine. And the salary offer, offered to those people, if you have a proper military background in Russia, for example, uh, was close to 300,000, what, what close to that was 300,000 uh, rubles a month, which is somewhere around uh, $4,000 maybe. Is a king's ransom for most of these guys, but it also underscores the importance of that operation and I mean, the uh, the risk entailed. Yeah. What is interesting is that R- Russia may be kind of like sowing the same uh, branch where it's uh, sitting on top of a tree that, that the same mercenaries, the most professional mercenaries, mercenaries are themselves, uh, I think, increasingly becoming skeptical about the offers and about uh, such jobs, no matter how high the salaries offered. Right. They know that uh, they might be paid the, the agreed salary for the first few months. Uh, so that they can uh, pass on the word and invite uh, invite friends to to sign up as well and stuff like that. But then uh, they don't have belief that the, the payments uh, would continue as agreed. And they don't. Uh, what's more important is that actually they don't have belief that uh, they would be taken care of. Uh, they understand that they are only well, mainly they are employed to carry out some uh, dirty tasks, whatever sabotage or, or whatever you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And in the end, if something happens that they will be uh, left on their own, no one will take care of them or their families. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that um, former SPU chief said was that, look, Europe has to wake up to the threat of Wagner, that this is not just going to stay in East Ukraine or in the Middle East and North Africa. It's very easy to train these guys up, dress them in civilian clothing, Put them on a plane to anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the world, really, and have them get up to things that Russian intelligence officers or agents would do, assassination, sabotage, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things that occurs to me is, again, everybody that we queried for the investigation did not live in Russia. At least the families didn't. So the childhood homes of these guys was Moldova, Ukraine. If there is a war, I mean, if you're if you're Prigozhin or you're his, I suppose, paymasters or his his commanding officers in the GRU and the MOD, and you're preparing for a war against Ukraine, proper full scale invasion, uh, the one thing to do now is to try to recruit people from Ukraine, have them sent to Krasnodar or wherever they're going to be trained up in Wagner facilities, sent back to Ukraine, and essentially have them act as fifth columnists, right? I mean, if there's if there's soldiers of fortune and they're they're doing this for the money and the chance of glory and fame or whatever, why not? I mean, I suppose the only disincentive there is how many of these guys want to fight against their brethren, 
You know, it's one thing to go fight insurgents in Syria. It's another if you're born in Ukraine to fight fellow Ukrainians. But who knows? Uh, again, you know, this this lack of empathy, this sociopathic tendency that they all seem to share is pretty alarming. And that's got to be something, by the way, that the Ukrainian intelligence service is very worried about. You know, if, if our own sons are going off to serve Mr. Putin, would they stay put to serve him in the event of, I don't know, full-scale invasion and occupation of Ukraine? Um, what, also what he said, I mean, that they, they are warned they are uh, partners in the EU about these kind of scenarios where you would have uh, Wagner guys uh, coming in on different planes and on you know civilian clothes like and meet up somewhere and start doing bad things. I asked uh, the um, uh, Minister of Defense in Sweden about this, uh, and they said yes, but well, this is a, a scenario that we are uh, very well aware of, and that uh, you know we are preparing to to meet these kind of threats as well. Uh, because if, if you think about the the evolution of Russian operations, not forget military stuff, but you know killings, uh, sabotage, you know arson, it makes sense. What can we do to kind of strip away the attribution? If our GRU guys are getting exposed because of photographs hanging on the wall of military diplomatic academy that wind up on VK or Facebook, let's just get random people with at least a base basic skill set that meets our requirements. Let's train them. Let's make them more sophisticated in their methods and let's use them. And, you know, we, we know what the Russian government line would be if they, these guys got their hands caught in the cookie jar because we've already seen it. Right. That provocation in eastern Syria in what 2018, where dozens of these guys, if not more, hundreds perhaps were killed again in a U.S. firefight with them. The MOD and the Russian foreign ministry line was who are they? They're not ours. You know, they're, they're just volunteers. They're, they're holiday makers wandering the deserts of eastern Syria. So they would be, it would be the same line if, say, you know, Wagner operatives were, were turned into the next incarnation of Unit 29155 and told, go out and make carnage. I mean, presumably they wouldn't be entrusted with things like Novichok or chemical or biological weapons, given, you know, who they are and, and their wild abandon. But I could easily see them conducting an assassination like the one that was just adjudicated in Germany against uh, Zellenheim Kangashvili, right? Yeah, I think they would they would be used for something like really robust and and uh, probably like large large scale. Yeah, but as uh, Matthias was saying, that that uh, Sweden like acknowledges a problem problem and, and is is preparing uh, Estonia the same. At least that's what I'm told. I don't know if it's um, I, I I can't verify it, of course, like independently. But at the same time, you, you must acknowledge that uh, to prepare against something like that is extra difficult to do. How do you do it? Guys flying in from different corners of, of Europe or, or the world, uh, even even if like countries like Sweden or visas to them, they will still get the, the Schengen visa from from somewhere. And then the, it's like at some stage they just show up and then they are there. But luckily right now, I don't think that, that Russia would dare to do anything like that. I think that would be like stepping beyond. So you don't think that they would send Wagner fighters to Europe to hop off? Well, I, I think that I think that right now it's uh, it's a concern, but uh, but their hands are tied in in, in Africa, Ukraine, and, and other countries. But I think that still uh, EU and the NATO memberships are a lot of stuff that uh, should make them concerned as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem though that you know these guys are not completely impenetrable. I mean, if we've all read the Bellingcat investigation into uh, the abortive sting operation the Ukrainians were going to run to try and capture them. 
and fly them back to Kiev under the, the guise of sending them abroad somewhere else to fight. Yeah, I mean, look, new minted fighters, mercenaries, nobody's going to know what they get up to until they get up to it, right? And they can be sent anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it doesn't need to be Wagner. So, I mean, I've noticed in the last 10 years, a greater willingness on the part of the Russian government to do things that they otherwise would not have done, at least in the 21st century. I mean, Litvinenko seemed to be kind of the beginning of a new phase of special tasks being exported abroad. You know, Skripal was kind of a bridge too far for many because it, I mean, the, the, the potential for collateral damage using Novichok in an English city that was shut down for several days as a result of this, blowing up ammunitions and weapons depots in NATO territory in Bulgaria and the Czech Republic. It does not seem like there's a de-escalation in terms of, you know, Cold War style military technical operations conducted against the West. And it also seems like quality control has gone out the window. So why not use thuggish civilians who are given a bit of training and paid the kind of money that they would otherwise never make to conduct things that, you know, require brute force or, you know, that are, is going to result in bloodshed. It just, it, it seems to me that this, this is not a case of alarmism on the part of a former SBU chief. This is just a very kind of logical sequence of events and a, a, a kind of an eminently likely prediction about what, what, what's going to happen in future. Particularly, again, if there's a war, think of what Wagner fighters could, could do, forgetting about just killing people on the battlefield. They could be doing things to try and destabilize a refugee situation or a migration crisis, which will result inevitably if there's an invasion of Ukraine, right? They could be sent for political destabilization operations in European countries that are, you know, suddenly discovered their hawkishness on Russia. You know, and and it's important to note that, you know, Prigozhin is not just the paymaster of a mercenary group uh, and forget about the troll farm, which seems like ancient history. He's also doing political influence campaigns, right? Using cut out organizations that are, are meant to be apolitical. I mean, Holger, you yeah, and I- Yeah, that's a very good point, actually, that you're making. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can see this as being kind of all, sort of all-encompassing. You've got your kind of roughneck goon squad in the form of Wagner. You've got your weird European, not NGOs, but what are the civic platforms that are stood up ostensibly to talk about the circular economy or post-COVID reconstruction, but in fact are being run out of the St. Petersburg back office that Mr. Prigozhin is in command of. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like its own shadow government or own shadow intelligence operation, except it's not, as we've been talking about. It's it's just essentially the GRU. A really interesting investigation uh, to see if they're trying to buy up uh, European security companies, not, uh, you know, needing a Russian Wagner group, but have a locally uh, established uh, company with uh, due licenses and everything that would be interesting to um, have a look at more closely. Well, I mean, isn't it the case that they're now trying to recruit from the ranks of the French Foreign Legion or from the former French Foreign Legion? So, yeah, I mean, they want people with European military skill sets, too. Yeah. And I, I mean, let's if, if they would have a local uh, a company, uh, you know, like a security company established locally within the EU, uh, they could do a lot more stuff, uh, I guess. Um, and uh, with the case of, uh, you know, I know for, for a Swedish case uh, with Gotland, you have the big island in the middle of the Baltic Sea. They have uh, been uh, practicing scenarios where, uh, you know, private security companies would take over the port, for example, on, on uh, in Gotland as one example for, I know this is a case of interest. 
it seems like what's what's taken place is, especially in the United States, the, the new strategic doctrine is return to conventional military problems, right? Return to state actors after 20 years of fighting the war on terror and fighting so-called non-state actors. But in fact, there is this hybridization effect where state actors are now in effect standing up their own quote unquote non-state actors, which are essentially just arm of the state to go around and do the kind of things that typically a special service would would get up to or a military unit. Um, So private enterprise is filling the void here where governments have decided we don't want to send our own cadres out to do this. It's easier to just second cannon fire with money. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's the same with the with the, all the organized cr- uh, criminals. I mean, they're also using com- yeah. companies uh, to to do stuff. And it's much easier and better. And a company can never be charged with a crime. You have to charge a person. So uh, in the end, it's uh, very comfortable uh, using the uh, you know facade of a legit company. Yeah. But I suppose, you know, look, with respect to Wagner, the jig is up in the sense that there is no deniability any longer. I mean, both the United States and the EU say that this is of the Russian state. So if you're affiliated with Wagner, you're affiliated with with the Russian government. But as you point out, it's not this isn't this is just the beginning. There's going to be other Wagner groups that have to we're going to spend seven years looking into what they do before we can come to a, a confident conclusion that, oh, it's just another cutout. Right. Yeah, yeah. There, there was one thing I, I've, when you mentioned this with the um, GRU uh, passports and, and the advertisement for uh, new uh, recruits uh, for Wagner. Uh, it says in the um, in the Trebovania uh, for for the service uh, that you should have a passport, but it's not like it says it's welcomed if you have a foreign passport. <laughs> so obviously they have some way of doing passports for you if you don't have it. Right. Well, also, I mean, you know, you never know if they're taking the passports of guys that they've recruited and using them as legends for actual intelligence officers. You know, the common turn in the 30s always wanted Americans and Europeans because once they once you handed over your passport in Moscow, you never got it back. <laughs> and whatever happened to you was, was irrelevant, but the passport was the important Another thing. Another interesting, I don't know if it will be relevant for a podcast or, or not, but uh, we identified in Estonia, let's say, four or five mercenaries. They were not Wagner mercenaries, but they were fighting uh, in, in eastern Ukraine for different paramilitary units, uh, such as Prizrak, which means ghost and, uh, and so on. And one of the guys fighting there, he was confirmed dead. He was handed out like about his death. Uh, the Estonian court system uh, gave out the, the death certific- certificate two years ago. But what we actually discovered right now, uh, we, we ran the story just the day before Christmas, is that the guy is not so dead at all. He's very alive. <laughs> he's posting photos uh, of himself in, in Eastern Ukraine. He's making career there in, in all the Donbass, uh, uh, whatever, the Saintnik uh, organizations and, 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 and things. There are news pieces of him coming out. So we have actually at least some people who have been declared dead, but at the same time, they are very, very much alive, active, and, and progressing in the same uh, mercenary path. So what happens to, to these guys' identities? Uh, someone will, will need to issue them new passports in, in other countries like Estonia. So I think that's also something to, to think that we might actually have an army <laughs> of uh, officially dead people. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's very convenient for kind of bringing them back to life, but as under new identities. Yeah, and right? no, no background whatsoever, like no right. official background. European Union has said that you're dead. 
And also, uh, I mean, one interesting case with this uh, from the um, video uh, with the they beheaded and tortured this as, as the Syrian man, the Moldovan Vladislav Apostol, that is, uh, you know, supposed to have died in the Battle of uh, Kazan there in February 2000 and what is it, 18. But I mean, uh, the Moldovan um, authorities are still investigating him for uh, crimes. And uh, I guess if you are uh, identified as being a uh, part of a really, really um, horrific uh, war crime. It would be very comfortable to be listed as dead, I guess. Uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, there is no death certificate that he is actually dead. I mean, who has, nobody has seen the, who knows if he, is he really dead or is he not? <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, for me, like uh, the, the important conclusion from this investigation as well is that uh, private military companies such as Wagner will be used in the future. Like it will be a common tool in the hybrid warfare uh, toolbox. They don't need to be wearing the name of Wagner. As we know, Wagner itself is like unincorporated. Uh, but uh, they will give uh, states such as Russia a plausible deniability and in conducting the tasks where they, they want to give, want to remain uh, officially out of it. So I think that any awareness that can be done to investigate, to reveal, to uncover such uh, efforts, I think that will be that will be really good. Well, I guess the other scary thought is that you know just because the Russians pioneered this doesn't mean that they're going to be the only country. That does yeah, it. sure, sure. Okay, yeah. guys, uh, you've been listening to Holger Runema and Matthias Carlson, my partners in the four-month-long investigation into the Wagner Group. You've been listening also to Foreign Office, the name of this show. Thanks very much, and we will see you next time. <laughs>